we're going to talk about uh, self-esteem and the op opposite of self-esteem, which is shame. And how the Torah shows us the path to getting over our self-consciousness and feeling great about ourselves. But first, a joke that no, one, no one's going to laugh at. There was once a chicken and a cow walking down the street. And they saw a restaurant. And in, in front of the restaurant, there was a sign that said, Breakfast special, steak and eggs. So the chicken says to the cow, Hey, cow, we're famous. Look, steak and eggs, that's us. I, I, the chicken says, I make the eggs. And you, cow, you make the steak. And the steak says, yeah, but um, I think it's a little bit different for you and I. And the chicken says, how so? The steak, the cow, pre-steak cow, which is called a cow. The cow says to the chicken, well, chicken, for you, it's a donation. For me, it's a commitment. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, because, you know, the chicken can, can give eggs and continue living. Once the, steak, once the cow becomes a steak, it doesn't become a cow again. So it's a pretty big commitment. At any rate, why am I talking about this? Um, there were 15, they're not called ingredients, what are they called? Materials, building materials that you use. It's ingredients if you're baking a cake. When they, melt, when they made the mishkan, the sanctuary in the desert, um, there were 15 building materials, um, gold and silver and copper and that kind of stuff. But then there were also some more uh, unconventional building materials, like uh, the goat skins. I don't think you get that at Home Depot. Goat skins at Home Depot. Um, and then there was something really, really offbeat called uh, the... Tachash skins, the Tachash skins, and what's a Tachash? I can't even translate the word Tachash. In fact, there is no legitimate English translation because I'm going to explain to you why. Um, the Tachash, the Gemara in Shabbos tells us, was a many-colored uh, animal. It had multicolors to its coat, vibrant coat, very, very beautiful to, to behold. It was also huge. It was like a big animal. I think it was, it says it was 30 amis long. Um, it's big, it's like a three-point shot. So, um, and, and, and it had, a, had this gorgeous coat. Oh, it had a single horn, had a horn. That's why some people translate it as a unicorn. That's not a unicorn, at least not like a horse-like unicorn. Um, they just call it a unicorn because it has one horn, so they're like, oh, unicorn. But for that matter, you could translate it as rhinoceros and be equally as incorrect. By the way, do you know that like a rhinoceros, my speed is, pro <laughs> my speed is prosperous? <laughs> and you can decode what that means. Huh? <laughs> There's no way you get that reference. There's no way. You don't? Good. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I stumped you finally with a reference. Okay, like a rhinoceros, my speed is prosperous. I don't even know what that meant the first time, let alone as a reference. Okay, 
the Tachash was this many-colored giant animal. Oh, and, and, and according to some of our sages, it was a kosher animal. Some say it became kosher at that time. It, didn't, it wasn't always kosher. But at any rate, so imagine this massive kosher animal with this vibrant, gorgeous uh, skin with one horn. And that's what a Tachash is. But here's the deal. Here's why there's no valid English translation for that species is because um, it only existed for that time. It only existed for that time. So when the English language came along uh, a couple thousand years after Moses was in the desert with the Israelites, the, the, there, were, there was no Tachash anymore to have a word for it. So at that point, all these other languages just made up words for it. So people do say unicorn, but it, it's totally arbitrary. It's not a unicorn. Um, now, what may horrify you if you're not connecting the dots, and normally if this weren't the point of this class, I would just leave this. Some, sometimes as a rabbi you say things that are dangerous and you're terrified people are going to connect the dots and you just are so relieved when you speak quickly enough that you can move on to the next subject without anyone asking. But this actually is the main point of the class, or it's a preliminary to the main point of the class. So I'm going to say it. If you put two and two together and you realize that the Jews in the, in the wilderness used this tachash hide as part of the decor of the sanctuary, and I told you that it only existed for that time and then not afterwards, then basically um, it kind of implies, and this is not something people like to hear nowadays, that they were basically hunted into extinction. So they were used for this and then they disappeared. That was it. Um, when I moved into my new house, I mean a couple years ago already, but I found some ivory and uh, whatchamacallit, I asked the, the former owner, like, do you want it? He's like, I don't know. I, I don't even know where it came from. No, you know, do whatever you want with it. So I called a, what's it called, a, uh, what are those, pawn shop. And the guy was like, dude, don't bring your ivory in here. I can't, I don't want, I don't need that kind of heat. And I found out it's illegal to buy and sell ivory. Unless you have really, really clear documentation that it's from, it's old ivory. But if you don't have clear documentation, nobody wants to touch it. Why? Because they were hunting the the elephants into extinction because people wanted the ivory. So apparently in the desert, the Jews hunted the Tachash into extinction. And yeah, so that's the elephant in the room. No pun intended. That's the Tachash in the room. I bought my friend an elephant for his birthday. He told me, thank you. I said, don't mention it. Don't mention it. Don't mention the elephant in the room. Okay, at any rate, we'll edit in a laugh track afterwards. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So the Tachash was hunted to an, into extinction, apparently. Uh, what's the deal with that? Now, also, uh, since I brought it up, you should understand that Jewish law is exceedingly careful <clears throat> about respecting all life, including animal life. Um, we would never waste the life of a single animal, let alone of an entire species. Uh, there's a story that's told about the Baal Shem Tov. Before the Baal Shem Tov was, was revealed as the, the, 
leader of the Hasidic movement. He was a, a hidden tzaddik, a tzaddik nister, and he had various different occupations. One of them he worked as a ritual slaughterer, as a shaykhet. At any rate, there was a story that one time a Jew sent his non-Jewish attendant to bring a chicken to the Baal Shem Tov to slaughter, and the non-Jewish attendant came back to the Jewish employer holding the chicken very much alive. So the, the Jew asked the non-Jew, I, I told you to bring this chicken to the shaykhet to, to slaughter the chicken, and you bring it home alive, why is it alive? So the non-Jew said, the new, the, 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 he, he said, the, the new slaughterer is no good. Oh, right, the Baal Shem Tov had been the slaughterer in that town, and then he left his post, he moved on, he was always traveling. So a new slaughterer came and replaced him. So now the non-Jew comes back to the employer, sent him and said, <clears throat> no way, I'm not letting the new guy sl uh, slaughter the chicken. So the Jew said, why not? He said, well, the old guy, Yisrolik, that's how he referred to the Baal Shem Tov, the, he called him Yisrolik. The Baal Shem Tov was a down-to-earth guy, so the, they called him Yisroelik. So the, the non-Jew tells the Jewish employer, he says, well, I can't let this new guy slaughter the chicken. The old guy, Yisroelik, um, he was totally different. So how was he different? I'm really butchering this story, no pun intended. But at any rate, <laughs> slaughtering it, butchering it, okay. The non-Jew actually went to the guy, the new slaughterer, and you know there's a thing, you have to pour water on the knife before you shecht. So he's like, ah, give me the chicken back, I, I'm not going to let you shecht this chicken. So the, Jew sa the Jewish slaughterer says to the non-Jew, like, what do you, you don't know Jewish laws of slaughter. Why? He says, no, I know what you're doing is not good. He's like, but that's what it says in halacha, you got to pour water on the knife before you shecht. It makes it smoother so it's more painless for the animal. And so I'm pouring water on the, on the knife. And the non-Jew said, no, but you're doing it wrong. The old guy, Yisraelik, meaning the Baal Shem Tov, when he would make the knife wet, he would wet it with his tears. He would look at the chicken that he had to slaughter, and he would start crying that he has to take the life of the chicken, and he would cry so much, the tears would go on the knife, and only when the knife was completely wet with his tears, then he would slaughter. You're not doing it. You're not crying at all. Give me the chicken back. At any rate, the point is, obviously, we don't take lightly animal life. So there really is something here to discuss, like why was there this weird species that essentially was completely used up only for this project and uh, ceased to exist. Okay. Um, and we are going to talk about self-esteem and shame, and shame and self-esteem. Remember I said that there's no adequate translation of this word, tachash? in English or in any other language. What I want to share with you is that even in Aramaic, classical Aramaic, there's no adequate translation. There's an entire translation of the Bible which is considered canonical in its, in its authority. It's called the Targum Unculus, and it was composed by a Roman convert to Judaism 2,000 years ago. And uh, Unculus is Aramaic translation of the Bible appears in most chumashim, in most uh, books of the Hebrew Bible, it appears side by side in the margins, albeit in the margins, but side by side with the original uh, Hebrew text. That's how official and authoritative it is considered. And um, the way that it translates this word um, is it makes up a word. It makes up a word because there is no Aramaic word for it. Because again, by the time people spoke Aramaic, Aramaic to us is an ancient language, but it's not as ancient as the biblical time. So by the time people were speaking Aramaic, there was no Tachish anymore. They were all gone. 
And uh, so Unkos had to make up an Aramaic word for the Tachash. In fact, Rashi refers to it. I'm just looking here. Uh, Exodus 25.5. Sefer Shmois, Parshas Truma, our Parsha. Perich of Hei, Posik Hei. And the word Tachashim, uh, which is the plural for Tachash. So it says, Min Chayo, this is Rashi I'm reading from, Rashi's commentary. Min chayo, it's a species of, of animal. V'loi hoisa ela it only existed at that time. V'harbe gvonim hoyolo, it had many uh, colors. L'kach, therefore, miturgum, it's translated as sas goina. Samach, samach, gimel, vav, nun, aleph, sas goina. Sas goina is a, it's not a real translation. It's a, it's a, it's a description in Aramaic of the defining feature of the tachash. He explains what saskoina is. Shesos, sos means it rejoiced umispa'er, and it was proud bigvanin shaloi in its colors. Gvanin uh, are colors. So saskoina, sos, it rejoiced with what the gvanin with its colors. Saskoina is sos gvanin. It rejoiced in its colors. It's not a real translation. It's just using Aramaic words to describe something that was sort of a hallmark of this, of this species. It rejoiced in its colors. Okay. So what does it mean now? We're getting a little bit closer. Okay. Very good, doctor. You're correct. So sasgaina, the Aramaic, is with two samach. Samach, samach, gimel, vav, nun, aleph. Sas is with two sins. So sin, sin is sas. But very often, very good. In Aramaic, a lot of word, a lot, a lot of letters are changed when they're changed from Hebrew to Aramaic. So phonetically, it's the same thing. So 100%. Although even in Hebrew itself, sometimes a sin will be used uh, interchangeably with a samach. For instance, on Hashanah Rabbah, some of the uh, the samach uh, the lines will be a, a, a sin. Because it could be because it could be used interchangeably because they're phonetically interchangeable. But excellent question. Okay. At any rate, we're getting closer to the clue here uh, of what this has to do with self-esteem and with, with self-love and the opposite of shame and the opposite of self-consciousness. Because here we have this animal, Sasgoina, Shesos Bigavonin Shaloi. In fact, not only it was happy, but Rashi says, Shesos Umispa'er. Mispa'er means it, it, it was proud. It was happy and proud of its colors. Okay, so at any rate, how can I be happy and proud of my, I don't know if it's colors, but whatever my features are. The Sasgoina, the Tachash, was happy and proud of its qualities. How can I be happy and proud of my qualities? All of us have different qualities, right? So here's the deal. Remember that horrific thing that we mentioned, how the Saskoina, the Tachash, was hunted into extinction? Okay. So, I'm not telling you to do this at home. I'm just telling you a historical fact. That's what happened. And now that it happened, let me tell you what we can learn from it. What is the source of shame? I'm going to define shame 
as the instinctive guilt that we feel when we misappropriate God's gifts. The first instance of shame that we know of, as recorded in the Torah, was immediately after the Chet Eitz eating from the Tree of Knowledge, and Adam and Eve instantly were ashamed of their nakedness. They were naked before, why all of a sudden did it have these shameful implications? So what happened is they gained knowledge. What kind of knowledge? Knowledge, they gained the life hack that you could use these body parts for personal ulterior motives. They had no clue before. The Rebbe once said that before the sin of treating from, uh, it's a sin of eating from the tree of knowledge, Adam and Eve would be no more self-conscious of their genitals than someone is of the arm upon which he wraps tefillin. In other words, it's just the body part that you use for a mitzvah. Why would anyone be embarrassed of that? What happened when they ate from the tree of knowledge, so all of a sudden their eyes were opened and they were aware that in addition to its God-given purpose, you could use it for other purposes. And even if you don't use it for other purposes, just the awareness that it could be misappropriated causes shame. I just did a fundraiser last week and I tried to raise a lot of money. I, I did raise a lot of money, Baruch Hashem. It wasn't the goal that I set, but we raised a bunch of money for soul words. And you can still give, by the way, it's still open. I want to tell you the biggest psychological blockage to fundraising is self-consciousness. Because when you're not confident, it's repellent. People are like, why do you want money? You feel funny about taking money. I feel even funnier about giving it to you. And really the key in fundraising is when you feel guilty that you don't deserve the money, that you may not spend the money well, that shows and people run. Even if you don't say those words, they can feel it. They can smell it. But when you realize that the money will do well, it will be used properly when you have it, then you become shameless. Shameless isn't the right word because it sounds like you should have shame, but you don't. You become shame-free. That's a better word. Because you realize, I'm not going to misappropriate these funds. I'm actually going to use these funds for the purpose they were created. And then you ha you're confident and you can ask for money and people actually want to give you money and just like you feel confident about it, they feel confident about it, everybody's happy and everyone gets to do a mitzvah. But the point I'm bringing out is, where does the shame come from? The shame comes from the fear of misappropriating God's gifts. If I think God gave me money, and I know that money is supposed to be used to make the world a holier place, but I also am thinking, well, maybe, you know, I'll uh, go buy some candy. Um, that self-consciousness is shame. And similarly with anything that you have. Um, if you have something, whether it's a talent, you know, maybe, maybe you're good at doing something, or maybe it's, a, maybe it's a, a resource that you have something, you have a big house, or you have a nice car, or whatever it is, or, or, or maybe it's, the, it's, it's a physical attribute. Maybe you have, you, maybe you have a wonderful uh, physical uh, attribute that, 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 that is considered aesthetically uh, very desirable. Even something like that, there's a way of, ha of experiencing shame with it and, and being shame-free with it. What's the difference if you're a human being, if you're descended from Adam and Eve? The difference is when that thing in your life is only being used 
for the purpose that it was designed for, meaning if it's in the world, then it has a God-given purpose. If you're using it only for the purpose that God gave it, there's no shame involved. It's like before the sin of the tree of knowledge. But if there's in the back of your mind this, this thought that, well, yeah, I know God gave me this talent, this resource, this ability, this uh, potential, this opportunity, this whatever, in order to glorify him. But, yeah, technically on the side, I could get a little bit of personal gain out of it as well. So that awareness itself is what creates the shame. As opposed to knowing that any gift I have is being used to glorify God, then it's the opposite of shame. There's pride. And then you can go out and you can be awesome at things. You can even draw attention for being awesome at things and get compliments about it. And there's none of that awkward self-consciousness. It's like, yeah, sure, keep complimenting me. You're not complimenting me. You're complimenting the maker who designed this, this wonderful thing and who's getting maximum usage out of it. So that's really what it comes down to is that when, you know, think about the things that are gifts that you have in your life, whatever they are. We all have gifts. Even people with problems, we all have problems, but we all have gifts, we all have blessings. Think about the things that you're good at or you're known for, whether it's a skill or a talent, a skill as something more that you developed, a talent something more you were born with, but either way. Uh, if, whether it's uh, something that you, you own, maybe you have a really cool uh, uh, cottage on the lake up, upstate. I don't know, whatever it is. Think about if these things, or maybe it's a physical feature. Uh, think about these things and think about whether they're a source of, of self-consciousness or a source of healthy self-esteem. And if you think about each one of those, um, you'll probably realize that, the, and it's not binary, it's not black and white, it's not all or nothing, but the degree to which any of these gifts, we experience them as a source of self-esteem, or the degree to which, conversely, we experience them as a source of shame <clears throat> and self-consciousness, is going to directly uh, be based on how well we are using that gift <clears throat> only to glorify God. So if you have that cool cottage upstate on the, on the lake, and you're using it for foolishness, or things that you don't want to exactly write home about, things that are, you know, uh, that you're not so proud of, then yeah, of course it's embarrassing. Or it doesn't even have to be so grub. It doesn't have to be that coarse. It doesn't have to be like you're using it to do crazy stuff. It could just be you're using it in a way that's not very mindful. It's not uplifting. It's just sort of uh, you're wasting your time there. So yeah, it, it would be a source of shame. And that's why people ask you, oh, how much did you pay for that cottage? Oh, no, really, uh, it was a short sale or whatever. I'm, somebody gave it to me. I don't know. They just, I don't even know what it's worth. Meanwhile, I go on Zillow and say, that guy has a $5 million cottage upstate. And my house isn't even worth that. Okay, so, but if you're using it for cool stuff, like to host a Soul Words community Shabbaton, let's say, there's probably a guy out there with a $10 million lake house upstate. And... You want to stop feeling shameful about it? You should host the Soul Words Shabbaton. And if that's the kind of stuff you're using it for, then what's the shame in it? It's beautiful. Um, a related idea. A related idea. There's a concept of Ein Hara. Ein Hara, people give it all types of weird explanations that are tantamount to Lahavdil, to voodoo. Let me explain to you what actual Ein Hara is. Ein Hara is actually the residual externalized effects of your own shame and self-consciousness. 
Because it's not having something nice and somebody noticing it that want that, and then them coveting it and wanting it that hurts you. Why would that hurt you? So that's their Aveda. That's their sin, that they're coveting your stuff. What it is, is when you yourself know <clears throat> that you feel self-conscious about this thing and you don't really know if you deserve it and you're not sure if you're using it the way that God intended it to be used. And that toxicity comes back and then it becomes what we call Ein Hora, evil eye, and it causes problems. Okay, let me explain to you the clearest illustration of this distinction. Um, there, was a, there was a sage from the era of the Talmud named Rabbi Yechanan. And Rabbi Yechanan was physically beautiful. The Gemara says, if you want to get a picture of Rabbi Yechanan's beauty, it said, uh, take a bunch of pomegranate seeds and place them in a, in a silver goblet that was just pulled from the, from the silversmith's fire and place it in a window during the golden hour um, and put uh, rose petals around the lip. And that image will give you a, a, a glimpse, a glimmer of the beauty of Rabbi Yechanan. He, but he was much more beautiful than that. I like that. That's poetry there. So Rabbi Yechanan used to s sit in front of the women's mikvah. Now, if someone today would sit in front of the women's mikvah, it would be a different story. Um, yeah, don't, don't do that. That's... But Rabbi Yechanan would do it. He was a tzaddik. Obviously, his intentions were totally pure. He wasn't doing it for any, any lascivious reasons. So, but somebody asked him, they knew he wasn't doing it for anything you know, perverse, God forbid, but they were like, what are you doing here? He's like, well, you know, whatever a woman sees when she comes out of the mikvah, it makes an impression on her brain and it affects her children. So I want the women to see me and then they'll go home and conce conceive children who are beautiful like me. So one of his colleagues told him, you've got to cut that out. Again, not because they suspected of anything you know, inappropriate. God forbid, this is Rabbi Yechanan, he was a tzaddik. But they told him, they warned him, you're, you're, you are risking an eye in horror, an evil eye. You're going to bring evil eye mojo on you. You've got to stop that. So <clears throat> Rabbi Yechanan says, well, I'm not too concerned about that because I am from, uh, I think, the tribe of Ephraim. Because uh, there's Ephraim and there's Menashe, but I, I believe he was from Ephraim, who are the children of, of Yosef, the biblical Joseph. And Joseph was blessed by his father Jacob, the Yidgula Reif. The sons of uh, Joseph, were, were, um, Ephraim and Menashe, were blessed, Yidgula Reif, which means to, to multiply like fish. Vid goes from the word dog, it means to multiply like fish. And Rashi explains multiplying like fish doesn't just mean quantitatively, it means qualitatively as well. It means just like the fish is swimming underwater and he's protected from the evil eye, then so too the descendants of Joseph should be able to multiply and it shouldn't draw any evil eye. So that's the story in the Talmud. Lubavitcher Rebbe asks a question, says, okay, that's a great story, but the story doesn't make sense because Rabbi Yechanan was saying that he's fish-like in the fact that he goes under the ra radar. He's a descendant of Joseph, and they go under the radar. They don't, they don't draw any evil eye because they're, you know, sort of incognito. But in the story, he was being public. Like, his actions were directly against that. And if you say, well, well maybe because he was, he was a descendant of Joseph, it means no one would notice him. You know, they walk by him like an invisible man. But then, then the story doesn't make sense, because the whole point was that the women should see him. Right? You following? So the story doesn't make sense. So the Rebbe redefines what Vid Gulareiv means. He says, um, the fish are immune from the Ayin Hara, not because they're hidden under the water and you can't see them. They're 
immune from Ayn Hara because the, the signature of a fish is that it's always connected to its life source. In fact, there, I spoke about shechita earlier, about ritual slaughter. There is no ritual slaughter of a fish. According to halacha, the minute a fish is taken out of the water, it's already considered slaughtered. Because a fish needs to be in the water to live. Therefore, a fish represents an entity that is totally attached to its source of life. The fish cannot leave its source of life. You know, we have the illusion that uh, we are ontologically independent. We exist, okay, maybe God made us at the beginning and we depend on him for a few things here and there, you know, we send him our Amazon shopping list. But, well, you know, basically we exist and, and we're good and some of our existence we even have improved on on our, on our own. And it's such a joke because we're completely dependent on Hashem. Just like a fish can't come out of the water, we cannot come out of, so to speak, our attachment to God. And in the moment that we do, we lose our entire existence. So a fish represents the awareness that you cannot leave your source of life. And that, the Rebbe says, is why they're immune to the Ayn Hara. Because the minute you realize that it's all Hashem, it's not me. If I have a gift, whether it's like Rabbi Yechanan, who is physically beautiful, or it's I have a cool uh, lake house upstate, or I'm good at doing this, I'm good at, uh, uh, I'm a good at dancing, uh, I'm not, <laughs> I'm a good dancer, or, you know, tap dancing or something, I'm not good at that, but whatever it is that God gifted you with, it's not yours, so what are you so self-conscious about? Golda Meir said, you don't have to be that humble, you're not so great, but I would say it like this, you don't have to be humble because it's not you that's so great, the greatness is God's and you're getting to use it. And once you realize that, then there's no self-consciousness involved at all. And then you can go out and do things that are cool, and everyone can see you doing that, and there's no Ayn Hara, because there's no shame. Okay. So what does it have to do with Sas Goina? The one who is Shesasu Mispar, Bigvon in Shalai, that he rejoiced and was proud of his colors. Here's the deal. I told you. This species of animal existed at one time. He was hunted into extinction. They were used exclusively for one purpose, for the Mishkan, for the sanctuary in the temple. You know, the, the, there's a medrash that says that the world doesn't deserve gold. Gold was only created in order to be used for the temple, to build the temple in Jerusalem. But here's the thing. Gold throughout history has been used for a lot of other stuff as well. And I'm not even talking about idolatry like the golden calf. I'm saying just neutral stuff, stuff that's not, not profane, but it's not holy either. Like, uh, you know, how, uh, there's gold in your computer, I think, for the, for the motherboard to, to, to attach to the circuitry. There's a little bit of gold in there. Or a gold filling. Or, uh, there's, gold is used for a lot of stuff. Uh, but gold really is only really supposed to be used for the, for the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. So then, here's the deal. Gold and, and most other materials in the world, they have a purpose that they were supposed to be used for, and yet how often are they used for that purpose? Now, let's personalize this, and let's like make this about ourselves. We possess gold. I'm saying figuratively. We have different gifts. We have different resources, different stuff that we're good at. And it was all given to us exclusively to glorify God. But, let's be honest, how often are we using it for that purpose? Even if it's 99.9% .9 of the time and then 0.1% we misappropriate it, there's still going to be that, that trace of shame. 
that there's something in my life that really was made only to glorify God, and I'm getting sort of personal benefit from it, and, and, and you know, you can justify it all you want, but you can't, you can tell me, Rabbi, this whole class is, is, is offensive because you're implying that people aren't allowed to enjoy life a little bit. Go ahead and enjoy it. See if it works. I'm telling you, it doesn't work because when you go and you try to misappropriate God's gift and use it for selfish motives, we always end up feeling funny about it. And you can self-medicate yourself as much as you want to feel as numb as, as you need to, to not feel that guilt. <laughs> but the guilt is there, and it's there for a reason. It's because intuitively we know if we have anything cool, if we're able to do anything cool, it's only there to glorify, glorify God. And to the extent that we're doing that exclusively, then we feel proud and we feel totally a lack of self-consciousness, and we're, we don't even mind people seeing us using our talents and our resources because it's all God's. But the, the minute we start siphoning off a little bit of personal payoff, that's where the shame comes in, and that's where we're like, oh, don't talk about it so much. Uh, it's like, I don't, do you want me to notice or you don't want me to notice? And I don't even, you know, when I'm trying to pull personal satisfaction from the gifts that God gave me, I myself don't even know the answer to that question. Like, do you want us to notice or you don't want us to notice? Like, you're flaunting it, but you're ashamed of it, and the answer is, yeah, I know, because the whole thing is weird. When you're using it for selfish motives, it, the whole thing is weird. But when you're using it to serve God, then it's clean, it's pure, there's no neurosis attached to it, there's just pride and joy. That's what it is, pride and joy, like the Saskoina. So why did the Saskoina so successfully have this joy and pride and pride and joy uh, in its colors? Why didn't it have self-consciousness? Why, why is it the emblem, the, 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 the very paragon of a lack of self-consciousness? You know why? Because precisely of that shocking thing I said, that it was hunted into extinction. It was never misappropriated. There were all used just for the holy sanctuary in the desert, and that's it. Not like gold. Gold has shame. Gold has been used for things other than the temple. The tachash was used exclusively for God's dwelling place in this world, and therefore it is proud of its colors, and it's happy about its colors. And that is a lesson for all of us, that anything you have in your life if you want to be able to be proud of it, if you want to be able to feature it, and, and, and be able to take a compliment graciously when people notice it and, and, and they remark, oh, that's such a nice this, a nice that, or you do this well, you do that well. You know how to achieve that? Is through being a good accountant and just being scrupulous about using all of these things for the right reason, for the purpose that they were intended to be used for, for the glorification of God, just like our friend the Tachash was able to do that. That's the lesson. <sighs> yeah. Okay. Anyway. Anything else that I... Uh... I think in the book it says Rav and Shmuel are talking in a cemetery. And I think one asked the other and said, why, why are all these people here? And I think one of them answered... 99.9% of the people died from Ein Hara. Yeah, yeah. Ein is a real thing. It's just not the way that people present it. Like, why should somebody else being petty be able to hurt me? I didn't do anything wrong. 
But the way the Rebbe explains it, it's really, it's, it's my projected shame. Yeah. Which means it's avoidable as well. And it's not avoidable in the way that people normally think, like, you know, hide your stuff, don't let them know about it. <laughs> it's avoidable by, 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 by using it for good stuff. And, and the guy out there has that lake house, that cool lake. Yeah, give me a call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What if you feel, you feel like you're using your gift in the right way, but other people don't see it that way? Don't worry about that. It only comes down to how you feel about it. At the end of the day, your self-consciousness is the clearest barometer. If you're using a talent and you don't feel shame about it, it's probably a good indication that you're using it well. And if other people make comments, it, it, it won't hurt you spiritually and it shouldn't hurt you emotionally. It shouldn't. You gotta work on it. But maybe with, after hearing this whole explanation, it'll help you to not care so much about what other people say. As long as you know in your heart of hearts you're good with your motives and you can tell your maker that you're using your talents only to glorify him, then you should feel good. No guilt. Good? Okay.